Go ahead and open your Bible to Amos chapter 2. Amos chapter 2, and we'll be starting at verse 4. I was reading a, a commentary on Amos the other day, and you know, commentaries come in all kinds of forms. Some of them are, are, are written just as easy reads. Some of them have all kinds of language stuff in them. But this one had a comment upon the book Amos. It said, the book of Amos is considered to be one of the most relentlessly gloomy collections of prognostications. And I thought, a man who uses the word prognostications has no room to talk. I mean, but really, relentlessly gloomy prognostications for whom? Uh, if you remember, we looked at the first couple of verses in Amos, and they really set the tone for the book. They reminded us that God is, is calling His people to go with the message to His people that God judges sin. That God calls whom He will call to go to His people with the message God judges sin. And, and the seven judges we look, judgments we looked at last week uh, the judgments on the nations were Amos's word to Israel. The go ahead, go to the map because we got map. Got to get a map in somewhere. Was, Amos came from Judah, went to Israel, but he told Israel about the way God was going to judge the pagan, violent, and cruel nations all around Israel. So so far with what we've seen, unless you are a pagan, violent, and cruel nation it would seem that Amos is a book that brings you hope in reality, right? All my neighbors are evil. God is going to judge my evil neighbors. The wicked are not going to get away with it. That's good news, right? Gloomy prognostications for the wicked are good news to the righteous living in the middle of the wicked, right? Now, don't you imagine that's exactly what Israel was thinking, right? Oh, I'm glad God's taking care of those Edomites. Those folks in Gaza, they had it coming. They really had it coming. Damascus, Tyre, Moab, Ammon, they all deserved it. Woo-hoo! Our neighbors are going to get what's coming. Problem was, Amos is not done. So with that, let's stand in honor of God's word and read Amos chapter 2, starting at verse 4. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go in to the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge, and in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars and who was as strong as the oaks. 
I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you forty years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life, and he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. Father, this is your word. You gave this word to your prophet Amos long ago. Gave it to him to speak to the people of Israel. But Lord, you, you kept it, you preserved it, so that it is here for us in your word. Which means it is for us today. So I pray that you would help us understand it, believe it, take it to heart, and let it do its work in us that we might be pleasing to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, Israel was probably feeling rather secure as God took down all of the, all of the nations around them. And even blessed for the first part of Amos' message. Their, their wicked neighbors were in deep trouble. But it's very dangerous for the people of God to rejoice in the judgment of others, especially while they are wallowing in their own sin. The relentlessly gloomy prognostications that Israel celebrated while they proclaimed doom on their neighbors were going to come home to roost on them too. In Amos 2, we learn that God not only judges the nations, but God judges His people when they sin. And we're going to look at six aspects of that judgment this morning. To begin with, to begin with, we're going to look at this. God judges His people when they break covenant, when they break covenant with Him. In verses 4 and 5, before God gets to Israel, He starts with the southern kingdom of Judah. And they are judged for one very simple reason, Right? They are judged for rejecting God's covenant instructions, for breaking the laws of the covenant, and for following the lies of their covenant-breaking fathers. God established a covenant with Abraham. He said, I'm going to have a people. He made it with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He renamed Jacob Israel. And so he called a people for himself, a covenant people Israel. And it included in that covenant a promise of long, prosperous life in the land. And as they were going to go into the land, Moses gave them instructions. The laws of God. The laws of God were not given by a random lawgiver who just likes rules. They were given to God's covenant people so that they might have a good, long, joyful life in the presence of God in the land of God. 
And Judah is guilty of believing that they could have the blessings of a long, prosperous, joyful life in the presence of God, in the land of God, and ignore the instructions of God. That there would be joy in the presence of God living outside the covenant law of God. Friends, when God says blessings are found in one way, you don't go the other way and still find blessings. You, you, outside of God's covenant blessings are only found God's covenant curses, his judgment. And so as we saw with the nations, he says to Judah, fire of judgment will destroy the strongholds of Jerusalem, the holy city at the center of the covenant religion God gave to his people. God takes his covenants with his people quite seriously. He makes covenant promises, and God keeps his promises, always. But he also defines boundaries, boundaries inside of which are the blessings of the covenant and outside of which are the judgments that come with the covenant. And God judges his people when they choose to think the blessings lie outside the boundaries. Now, the, the new covenant, our covenant as the church, is a covenant of grace for certain. But guess what? So was the covenant God made with Israel. Israel never earned God's favor. Abram was an idol-worshiping pagan when he was called. It was always grace. And we know under the covenant of grace, our, our, our new covenant, we know Christ is the one who keeps the covenant and he always keeps the promise. So we can be sure of the covenant promises of eternal life if we place our faith in Christ and enter into that covenant. But we must understand that here and now, even as the new covenant people of God, the church, he's given us boundaries. And inside those boundaries are blessings. Blessings, blessings and joy. But if we choose to think we can live outside those boundaries and still find the joy, well, we stand under the same kind of judgment God brought to Judah. So it behooves us to ask, as we look at the New Testament word and the commandments of Christ, are, are we living in the boundaries? Or are we living like fools thinking you can live outside the, the blessing boundaries and find the blessings? If we are, well, God judges his people when they break covenant with him. We also see this. God judges his people when they practice injustice. You know, Israel never got along with Judah, so they were probably okay when the covenant people of God got taken down a notch in verses 4 and 5. They probably didn't mind hearing that God was going to bring judgment on Judah too. They probably thought things were just finished now. We've got all the way around us. Everybody's taken care of. Until verse 6. Starting in verse 6, this agribusiness prophet from the southern kingdom of Judah brings the word of judgment home to Israel. It's coming to them too. And... and he says again, three transgressions of Israel and four, but here, honestly, we've got more than four crimes listed. Sometimes we had, had a few, sometimes you have many. Remember what we said, what that phrase really meant was, your, your sin is full and judgment's coming. He's saying three is filled up to four. I mean, the numbers aren't really the big thing. It's that it's filled up. 
And as he speaks judgment upon Israel, he, he begins with judgment against their injustice. Injustice toward the righteous, the needy, the poor, and the afflicted. They sell the righteous man for profit. You know, maybe they're selling them into slavery. That seems to have been a common crime amongst their neighbors, and Israel really liked being like their neighbors. But somehow they were, they were getting profit from taking righteous people and treating them as commodities. They sell the needy man for nothing more than shoes. The man who is needy is not worth much, but they still get a little out of him. They're not going to look on him and say, well, he's needy. We won't oppress him. We won't practice injustice on him. He's suffering enough. Instead, I'll get my nickel or my dime. I'm getting rid of him too. I'm going to trample on him too. Matter of fact, that's what he says. I'll trample. They trample on the poor. In order to get what they want, to get, get the, the profit they want, to get the, the prosperity they want, they will walk all over the poor. It even says that they're a roadblock to the afflicted trying to get out of affliction. He says they, they turn aside the way of the afflicted. The, the afflicted are trying to get to where they can be unafflicted, and they turn them away from that. They keep them from getting in a place that could be better. You know, it's one thing that nations were unjust to other nations, that pagan nations were unjust to other nations should not surprise us. But these are God's covenant people. This is the people of Israel practicing injustice to their own people. Each man being willing to make another one suffer in order that he might gain. And God judges his people when they practice injustice. And again, this is not just a, a boundary that God draws in this old covenant, is it? If we turn to the book of James, and we look at chapter 2 in the book of James, James writes, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing, and you say, oh, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him, but you have dishonored the poor man? Saying God's building a kingdom out of these poor people, and you've chosen the other side. You, you see, God still judges his people when they practice injustice, even under the new covenant. That's what James is saying. There is no place in this new covenant of grace for the people of God, the covenant kingdom representing people of God, the church, to promote themselves at the cost of others. To say, hey, this guy's coming in to church this Sunday. I think he would be really good for our church budget. I think I can think of four committees to put him on. I bet he'd be a great Sunday school teacher. Even his car showing up in our parking lot might make other people come to church. If this guy comes, he's a winner. 
We're going to go all out for him. Make sure we've got a good seat for him. Let's put him first in the potluck line. Right? Another guy comes in, and I remember this, this happening once in our church in Topeka. man comes in. He's been living on the streets. It's winter. He doesn't have good shoes, so he wraps uh, grocery bags around his shoes. He doesn't have real good covering for a head, so he's got one on his head, too, and he smells real bad. Where does he sit? He gets stuck in the far corner. In that part, I mean, we would try to make him sit up front where no one wants to sit, but you can't even get a visitor to do that. So we put him in the far corner and we leave seats vacant around him. Right? That, that's injustice. And, and, and what James is saying, I mean, certainly what Amos is saying about Israel, James says of the church, and that means the church really needs to discipline believers who practice injustice, not be believers who practice injustice. The church must actually stand against injustice. And I think in a world that is filled with injustice, that means we need to stand against governments and institutions that promote injustice, like governments that would tell their citizens that it is okay to kill the most innocent and the most unable to defend themselves. We, we cannot say that that's good. We have to stand against that. That's injustice. I mean, the sanctity of human life Sunday? There should never be a day of the week, yet alone a week of the year, that is not the sanctity of human life day to us. We, we, and, and then to hear people in, in what, we, what they call churches stand up and say it's okay to kill preborn babies. Well, God judges his people when they break covenant with him, and God judges his people when they practice injustice. We also see that God judges his people when they practice immorality. We get to the second part of verse 7, where it says, A man and his father go to the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. See, immorality... It's just another form of covenant breaking. It, it drags the name of your God that you are in covenant with. You're identified in the covenant as God's people. It drags the name of your God into the immoral pit that you choose to swim in. That's what he says. He says, my holy name is profaned when they do this. If people see the people of God do this immoral thing, they say, they must not have much of a God is what they say. Now, the, the, word, the word girl in verse 7 most likely refers to a slave girl. So the, the theme of injustice is really continued. These are men taking advantage of, of a servant, a father and son taking advantage perhaps of a servant in their home. But the statement, so that my na holy name is profaned, indicates that it was probably a violation of, of some of the specific laws of God given in Leviticus 18 to 20, the morality code of Leviticus 18. So Israel is, is not just a nation where injustice is going on. They are okay with immorality. Sexual immorality is being practiced and treated as though it is okay in Israel. And we need to remember again that Israel is not just any nation. These are 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel. 
The covenant people of the Old Testament, they are in covenant. The covenant God made with Abraham and with Moses. God's people. And God judged the nations out there. And we remember why he did that. Because God is the one who lifts up nations and takes down nations, period. Because he is the sovereign God over all creation. But then what, what if his covenant people do things that even the nations are judged for? Well, Israel and Judah are the covenant people of God. They've, they've been called and they've been blessed by God in a special way. All the promises of the covenant are theirs. And, and here they, they, they're practicing not only injustice and violation of God's covenant, they're, they're soiling the name of God with immorality. I mean, it seems as though it might be possible for a culture to descend into the pit so far that it thinks these things are okay. But the reality is, they're just okay with being bad. They don't really believe this is good. Read Romans 1 and 2. All of nature screams to them such that the, the Godhead itself is obvious to them, and they know this is sin, even as they tell themselves it is okay and tell others it's okay. But what if God's people do it? The ones who are in covenant with God who, who now have the, the God dwelling amongst them. I mean, Israel had God dwelling amongst them in one way. We have God dwelling amongst us in a slightly different way. But nonetheless, God dwelling amongst them and they're doing this. It soils his name. You, you, you know, we, we, we get worried when people cuss and they take the names Lord in vain. God is saying sexual immorality takes my name in vain. You are wearing my name and you shouldn't, is what he says. And God judges his people when they practice immorality. I mean, do you remember how Paul described it for us as the church? If you look at 1 Corinthians, and you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in verse 15, Paul writes, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? So we're now the body of Christ. He says, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Paul says, look, you are one with the Lord in spirit. If you join in the flesh in a sexually immoral act, you are one with spirit in the Lord, joining the Lord to that act. And God will judge immorality. So God judges his people when they break covenant with him, when they practice injustice, and when they practice immorality. And God judges his people when they practice false worship. There's a lot in verse 8, and we won't cover it all, but verse 8 at least tells us that Israel is, is, not, is, is not only living like the pagan nations, Israel is involved in false worship. They are practicing idolaters. First, I mean, there's several things here. First of all, they lay down beside altars. They lay down beside altars. It says they, they lay themselves beside every altar. Every altar. 
Now, this, this may, taking the previous verse, there may be a temple prostitution thing going on there. I, I'm not exactly sure. But the fact that every altar probably doesn't mean just every altar in the holy temple of God in Jerusalem, since this is the northern kingdom Israel. They're not only sinning in the way described in verse 7, they're doing it perhaps as a religious practice, but they're also doing it at altars to false gods. Or, at the best, at the very best, they're doing it at altars that God never told them to build to worship God, in places God did not want them to worship Him, at altars. So they're at false altars. It's false worship. Second of all, they lay down on garments that are not theirs. So they're doing this, but they're doing it as a practice of injustice. They're pilfering blankets from poor people so they can take them to church on Sunday instead of buying their own. They're, 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 they're defaming this whole idea of worship by bringing injustice to the practice of worship. Third, they drink stolen wine when they come to worship. These are the rich people finding the poor people for whatever and taking all, all the wine and then gathering and saying, well, let's have a big old worship service. Israel was certainly a, a, a firm believer in that old British phrase, in for a penny, in for a pound. It's like they're trying to find absolutely every way to defame the name of God in the practice of worship here. They're likely, this is referred to drunkenness with wine that they stole through dishonest taxes. And fourth, they even did this in the house of God. The houses, perhaps this means the houses of worship they built to worship Yahweh. So I think the every altar means false gods. Likely this means in the houses built for the worship of Yahweh, even if they weren't supposed to build any. They're doing this in those houses. So, I mean, it's bad enough that you do sinful pagan things in the worship of a sinful pagan false god. But now they bring those exact same sinful pagan false worship processes into the house of the one true God. These are God's people. This is covenant Israel. And they're doing it as covenant. It's pretty hard to imagine that things could be worse in the worship of Israel. I mean, they'd started off bad. The northern kingdom of Israel started off bad. They, when the northern kingdom formed, the new king said, hey, we don't want everybody going down to Jerusalem in the south to worship, or they'll think that we shouldn't be our own kingdom. So what we'll do is we'll build our own temples in, in Bethel and Dan and, and one other place, and, and we'll just set them up here and we'll have northern temples for worship. Okay, that was bad because God had said, build my temple in Jerusalem. And they, they also said, you know what? We, we really don't need the priesthood rules of the Sabbath. We'll have our own priests up here to do this too. So, so they ignored God on that too. And, and, and it's as though that was that first step. Sometimes the slope is slippery. And, and it led them to the place where they were just willing to bring anything and everything that they thought was was pleasing to them into their idea of worship. And God judges his people for false worship. Now, friends, the, the New Testament is not as detailed, but it is every bit as clear about how God is to be worshipped under the new covenant by the church. 
and a desire to mimic the entertainment industry and to package and sell church as cool is leading us down roads to false worship as dangerous as the roads that Israel taken. I, I, you read articles about fire truck baptisms. We bring in the fire truck with a pool in it. We fill a pool and we ask, does any kid want to be baptized this morning? That was one of ours. Gospel presentations by clowns. For heaven's sake, what is a clown that you would think that that is the media by which we should say you are sinners and need to be saved by a holy God? Smoke and light shows for effect so that you can feel something. Well, what are you supposed to feel at a smoke and light show? Something that you know goes with the smoke and light show that you got outside of the worship of the almighty God. But we brought it into church so you could feel it here too. Why do we think the things that the world uses in their worship of false gods should define our worship of the one true God? Why do we think that? Israel started bad and ended up worse, and that is the direction we will always go if we seek to mold the worship of the saints to fit the festivals of the fallen. And God will judge his people for false worship. God judges his people when they break covenant with him, when they practice injustice, when they practice immorality, and when they practice false worship. And God judges his people for ingratitude. That, may, that's, that almost seems like too small a word, but that's what I came up with. God judges his people for ingratitude. Look at verses 9 through 12. God says, I, I was the one. He, he turns from spelling out the crimes of Israel to reminding them of who the victim was. In all these things, he's just said, you are doing this, you are doing this, you are doing this. Let me remind you who the victim is. Now, of course, the poor, the needy, afflicted, and of course, the servant girls are victims of those individual sins. But the ultimate victim of these sins is God. Every sin of injustice, every sin of immorality, every sin of false worship is an act of cosmic rebellion against a kind and gracious God who has proven his faithfulness to his people over and over again. Look at the list. He says, you know what? I'm the one who completely defeated your enemies, the Amorites, so that you're in this land. I mean, you're not outside the promised land anymore. You're inside the land because I defeated the people here and gave you the cities. He says, I'm the one that delivered you out of slavery of Egypt, and I'm the one that got you through the wilderness years that you earned by your own sin, and I'm the one who brought you here. He says, by the way, I'm the one who raised up prophets for you so that you would know. I didn't just give you my, my instructions for how to have a blessing in life. I, I gave you prophets who would point you back into the boundaries as you started straying out. I gave you prophets who gave you my word. And I gave you Nazarites because sometimes you needed to see some good examples of men who are absolutely devoted to their God. I gave you the prophets and the Nazarites so you'd have examples of devotion in the word of God. And then God says, Israel, you know this, don't you? Right? Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel? You know I'm the one who did this. You know I have been 
faithful to you, is what God says. He's saying their sin is all the more horrifying and egregious because they've been constantly breaking covenant with the God who was constantly keeping covenant. God says, I just keep giving to you. And you just keep breaking covenant with me. And according to verse 12, they even treated the prophets and Nazarites like enemies, saying, prophets, shut up. And Nazarites, I know you took a vow to devote yourself to God and not drink any wine. Here's a bottle. In other words, God judges his people for ingratitude. Ingratitude. He has done for them and done for them and done for them, and here they are rebelling against him. Andrew Peterson wrote a great song several years ago called, Is He Worthy? If you don't know the song, look it up, listen to it, learn it, sing along with it. Honestly, it's that good you need this song in your life. Honestly. The answer to the question of the song title, Is He Worthy, though, is quite simple. He is. He is. And and every time that we distrust him and believe that the blessings of God can be found in the ways of the world instead of in the ways of God, every time we think that worship is better if we do it the way the world does it instead of the way God said to do it, every time we do that, what we are declaring is saying, is he worthy? No. He's not. He's not worthy of my obedience. He is not worthy of my worship according to his ways that he wants to be worshipped. We are saying, I am not thankful that he did this for me. It is not enough. I need what he gave me and I need what the world offers too to find true joy. We are saying he's not worthy. Which makes us In our day and age, which makes us just like unbelievers who have never known his covenant grace. If you look at Romans 1, Paul is not talking about the church here, but look at what he says in Romans 1, verse 20. He says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. He's talking about lost people who are in utter rebellion against God in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. But then he says, for although they knew God, now they just knew him through his creation. We know him through his son. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but came futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Ingratitude is how he describes the wicked fallen people who have given themselves over to every kind of horrible sin you can imagine. And ingratitude is exactly what the people of God are judged for in Amos 2. Now, why would he think, why would we think he would be happy with ingratitude in our hearts? Why would he think we, say it again, why would we think he would be unhappy with ingratitude in my heart? Where I live like he's not worthy. God judges his people when they break covenant with him, when they practice injustice, when they practice immorality, when they practice false worship, and when they practice ingratitude. And God judges his people 
ultimately by destroying their self-confidence. Ultimate, his judgment, is the destruction of their self-confidence. When we get to verse 13, the last verses of God's summary judgment against Israel are the I will declarations of his sentence against them. They've been declared guilty against a holy God. Here's what God is going to do. Now, interestingly, unlike the other nations, he doesn't start with, I'm going to bring fire on you to end, the, end their arrogant rebellion or end, you know, judge them with fire. In essence, that's like the rest of the book of Amos. He'll get there. But what he does, he says, I am going to bring an end to the arrogance that made you think you could live in rebellion against me as my people and I would be okay with it. I'm going to get rid of the arrogance that led you to think that you could live like those wicked nations and you'd be okay because I have been good to you. God's going to bring an end to their arrogance. Everything they leaned on instead of him, he is going to tear down. God tells them of the day when he will judge them, a day that will come soon at the hands of Assyria. I mean, look at these words. He, he, testify against them. He says, or sorry, excuse me. He says, behold, I will press you down in your place. He says, I, I, literally, I, I'm going to smash you and it's going to be like getting run over by a grain truck is what I'm going to do. You've trampled innocent. I am going to utterly smash you. He says, flight shall perish from the swift. Nobody, not even your fast runners, are going to find any place to hide. You may depend on your, your feet to get away from me. You will not. Then he says, the strong shall not retain his strength. Nobody, not even your strong men, will have enough strength left to deal with the, the judgment that I am going to bring on you. You're not just going to bear up under it. He says, the, the mighty won't be able to save his life. Your greatest warriors are not going to be able to arm themselves and resist the judgment that I bring upon you. They're not going to do anything for yours either. The one who handles the bow will not stand. He who is swift of foot shall not save himself. The, the one who rides the horse won't save his life. The, the archers are going to run away. Nobody will escape by speed or no one will escape on a good horse. The, the, and, and it says, he who is the stout of heart among the mighty. In other words, the one who has the most courage. The bravest of souls is going to be running away naked and in shame. And that's what the Lord says, declares the Lord. All of their strength will be taken from them. Everything they depend on, all of their self-confidence will be shown to be foolishness in that day. They had God. And God had done everything for them. And they didn't think that was good. They said, we, God, you have done everything for us, but you've defined these boundaries wrong. We'll live outside of them, and you'll still be good to us, won't you? They were, they were arrogant, and, and they thought, we are strong. We, 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 we have it all. We, we've got warriors. We, they trusted in themselves instead of God's word. And God is going to destroy Everything that makes them think that's okay. Everything that makes them think they can trust in themselves instead of God will be crushed. God judges his people by destroying their self-confidence.
And church, I, I think there's just a, a really good reminder for us. What, what are we trusting in today to bring us hope and joy? Are, are we trusting in our good God? Are we looking at the good things that he gives us? Are we believing the blessings are to be found in obedience and trust in him and worship of him? Or do we trust in other things? Do we trust in nationality? I mean, would you still follow Jesus if you had to do so in a land where it was not safe to do so? Could you sing of your joy in Jesus if instead of going home to a nice lunch today, you had to sneak out the back door and hide so that you wouldn't be arrested? Or maybe you're trusting in your bank accounts. Would you, would you still follow Jesus if you had to do so in poverty, depending on others for your next meal? Do you trust in him or are you trusting in family? Would you follow Jesus if, if all of your family turned against you for trusting in Jesus? I mean, really turned against you. Not just didn't want to hear from you at the family potluck, but just simply wanted nothing ever to do with you again. Are you trusting in Jesus or are you trusting in your health? Would you still follow Jesus if every day involved more and more physical suffering than the last? If you weren't even able to care for yourself? You see, it's easy for us to build up self-confidence and trust in, in our own strength. And if, if we do that, we will become people who live lives of injustice and immorality because we won't be trusting in the Lord. And when God brings justice on us, he will remove those things we trust in. God not only judges the nations, but he judges his people when they sin, when they break covenant, when they practice injustice or immorality or false worship, when they practice ingratitude, and when they're filled with self-confidence. Now, friends, this was a hard sermon to write. It was partly hard because I was down with the flu for the first few days of the week. But that wasn't the biggest reason it was a hard sermon to write. It was hard because this passage that starts off by revealing some very sinful and wicked practices by the, the people of Israel as it moves on really reveals that the reason they did it was that they had forgotten the grace of God. They had forgotten the God of grace. They didn't trust that God's will, that God who was constantly good to them, they didn't trust that this God who was always good to them, that his will was the place of blessing. They didn't trust in his strength to care for them and give them wisdom for blessing. They trusted themselves and Instead of God, it was, it was hard to write this sermon because I, 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 I honestly see too much of my own heart in some of these things. Uh, maybe, maybe, and, and maybe even the, the hearts of, of the church in these things. And maybe I didn't, didn't preach it well, or maybe you're distracted, maybe your heart's more sanctified than my own. But if you hear these things yourself and you think, you know what? I fear that God would have every reason to want to bring judgment on me. If that's you, and you hear that word from God this morning, well, don't brush it off, for heaven's sake. Don't brush it off. Listen to it. But I would also encourage you, uh, if you find yourself under the weight of God's word this morning, l listen to these words that C.S. Lewis wrote. He wrote them in 1942 to a Christian lady 
who was struggling under the weight of sin. He, he called her a lady in a trough. <laughs> he wrote of chronic temptations she was suffering, and he wrote of this, describing God's willingness to forgive us if we repent. He said, we shall, of course, be very muddy and tattered children by the time we reach home. But the bathrooms are all ready, the towels put out, and the clean clothes in the airing cupboard. Friends, it is true today. If you, if you read these words and, and you say, I fear that I am more like Israel than I would want to be, and I fear that, that God would bring punishment in my life, then know this. If you confess your sin, if sorrow for your sin brings you to the place where you turn to him and say, God, I have sinned against you, and in my rebellion I deserve your punishment, if you confess your sin, he will forgive you your sin. He will do it because Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for sin. He will forgive you and he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The bathroom will be there, the towels will be laid out, and clean clothes awaiting. If you will confess your sin, turn from them. It isn't confessing your sin to say, God, forgive me. In other words, don't punish me, but I'm doing it tomorrow. That is not confessing your sin. Confessing your sin is, God, I recognize I am in a horrible place of rebellion against you, and I need your forgiveness. If you do that, he will forgive you today this very moment, because Jesus paid the price for sin. Let's pray. Father, it is indeed hard to read your word and read of the punishments that sinners deserve, especially when we read that this word was written against your covenant people under the old covenant. Because, God, we recognize that, that we sin. Maybe it's injustice. Maybe it's immorality. Maybe we've sought something in worship that had nothing to do with what you would describe as worship. Maybe we've been arrogant thinking that we are in a place of blessing, not because you did all these good things for us, but because we deserve it. Or maybe we're just so confident that we, we think that we could withstand whatever judgment you bring. God, whatever that sin is, Lord, if it is in our heart this morning, break us. Bring us to the place of sorrow for our sin, that we might turn to you in repentance and be forgiven. Lord, if there's someone here this morning who's never done that, if they have just day in and day out lived in their sin, thinking that it was the place of, uh, of joy, the place of blessing, and they this morning have come to realize that that blessing is not there for them, Lord, I pray that this morning, this first time, they would believe and be saved. But God, as this was your word to your people in the Old Testament, God, I, I, I pray that you would make it your word to your people today. That where there is sin in our hearts and in our, 
on our hands, Lord, that we would repent this very morning and be forgiven. Help us, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'm with you. So if God has...